You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Happy Sunday. Hello. Welcome. Uh, The teaching text for today is John chapter 6, verses 57 to 71. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, JP. Good morning, everyone. A pleasant crowd. I was like a little bit iffy about like what it was going to look like today. People are coming back from traveling, traveling today, but we got a pretty, pretty good-sized crew here. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know, and I have the privilege of wrapping up this kind of mini-sermon series we've been in about the Bible. It's a series we started two weeks ago talking about what is the Bible, and the reason why we're answering the seemingly very basic question is because starting in January, as we've alluded to in the pa- over the past two weeks, we are starting like a two to three year-long journey through the story of Scripture um, in our teaching. And so what that means is, before we get to that in January, we figured we'd have to talk about this text called the Bible. Now, to recap, for those of you who are maybe who are your first Sunday here, week one, <clears throat> I had the privilege of talking about what is the Bible? Like that, that very basic question, like what is it? And we, we talked about the Bible being this meta-narrative of, of God telling his story about his redemptive plan in the world and how that story interacts with the stories we hold ourselves. Then last week, Patrick talked about what we believe about the inspiration of Scripture and how Jesus is the, is the word that underpins all of the Scriptures we have. And so today, so what is Scripture? what we believe about its divine inspiration, but there's something else we have to talk about. And to talk about it, I first want to tell you a story. So I remember about 10 years old when I got baptized. I was growing up in like a non-denominational church. 
I had some sort of, you know, I guess you can call it like an alter experience moment though at the time. I'm not sure if I was completely cognizant of what was going on, but it happened. And I remember a few months later, I got invited to be baptized. And so, of course, I did. That was a very big deal in my family. And so after I got baptized, my, both my parents who grew up in Brooklyn, they grew up in Sunset Park, they did the most Brooklyn thing you can do to celebrate, is they took me to, to, to DeKalb, DeKalb and Flatbush and took me to Junior's Cheesecake um, to get some cheesecake. And that was how we celebrated. That was like spending big money, okay? For us, that was it, right? So we went to Junior's, got some cheesecake, and I remember sitting there with my parents, and my, and, and my dad kind of pulls out a gift bag, and he pulls it out, and out of the gift bag, he pulls out this Bible. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is because if you grew up in church a little bit, you know when you're young, you get like those storybook Bibles, right? It's like, it has the pictures and the words. Everyone's smiling all the time. Everyone seems pretty happy. It's sunshines and flowers and roses. And there's Jesus. And then there's that one dark moment where they tell you Jesus dies. They kind of gloss over it really fast. And he comes back three days later. And it's this kind of simplified story of scripture for children. Now, being baptized, being about 10, going into, you know, into 11, middle school, all that stuff, my parents gave me like my first real like adult Bible. And I would say it's a pretty, pretty dope Bible, I'm not going to lie. It was one of those Bibles that had like a metal cover. So it was like a metal Bible. Like, so if you got shot with that thing, like that was bulletproof, like it, it was pretty cool. So I was very hyped, new Bible, right? So I remember... I was going to like, I love the story of Samson, you know, growing up. Now, again, it was the sanitized version of the story. So I just knew his long hair guy who was really strong. And then, so I was like, let me just go to this. I knew Judges enough to like work my way around there. And I, I remember reading through Judges and it wasn't like the storybook Bible I had grown up reading. Um, I get to this judge named Ehud. Now, Ehud, um, his story is very interesting. He gets sent on an assassination mission to go assassinate a pagan king. And the story goes, you have to picture this king on his throne, kind of rife with power and just debauchery, right? Like he's this pagan king painted terribly. And the story goes is that Ehud gets sent to assassinate this king. And he's, and here's the funny thing, like he's left-handed. So when they check his when they check him for a sword, they check his left side, not his right side, because most people are right-handed, right? So he sneaks in the sword, stabs the king, stabs him so hard that the, the sword gets swallowed by the stomach of the king. Okay, this is a story in the Bible, 10 years old reading. Swallowed by the stomach of the king. He escapes out the window, and then it gives this interesting detail that his servants think that the king is in the bathroom. And so they don't want to disturb him until they get so weirded out that he hasn't asked them to come back into the room that they come in and find this dead king slouched on his throne. Ten years old, Bible. This was not the storybook Bible of my childhood. I just read about a government assassination um, in the middle of Judges, which I thought was this cool book about guys with long hair who are strong. I share that story because whenever we talk about scripture, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the Bible is not only a difficult text to read, but it is also a perplexing text to read, at times even a disturbing text to read. The Bible is full of stories like the Judge Ehud, that's a, that's a, a lighter story, um, full of violence and Stories that are weird, disorienting, stories that are downright disturbing. 
stories that make us question, are we reading a holy book inspired by God at all? And so for many of us, our experience with these stories has kind of segmented our engagement with Scripture. Like, I, mean, I don't know if this speaks for true to you, but I know sometimes you come in contact with those narratives. Like, you know what, I'm just going to be like a Gospels and Psalms type of person. I'm just going to stay in the story of Jesus and rock with the Psalms, because at least, like, you know, I don't have to deal with the difficult texts. But the reality is, though that might work for some time, we have to come to grips with the reality that all of Scripture is God-breathed. So all the scripture speaks to the reality of who God is. And so what do we do with these difficult texts that confront us? How do we wrestle with the bizarre, the disturbing, and the outright weird and strange? And that's what we want to talk about today. Um, how do we deal with the difficult texts in scripture? Because if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to be exploring the story together as a community, we're going to come across in that story things that are going to challenge disorient, and maybe even outright offend us. So how do we deal with it is the question and answer today. Now, here's what we're not going to do today, just to kind of set this up. I want to say at the outset, there is no magic bullet, no hermeneutical trick for dealing with difficult texts in the Bible. So today my goal is not necessarily to alleviate your tensions, sorry to say. But, but my invitation today is actually to invite you to adopt a way of wisely navigating those tensions. Because again, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to be people engaged with the story of Scripture, then we must know how to navigate the tensions we hold with the book we read. And so, what I'm going to do today is this. And I don't usually say this on Sundays, but I'll say it this Sunday. If you want to take notes this Sunday, this might be a Sunday to do so. Um, because what I want to give you is a set of hermeneutical paradigms. That is a very fancy way of saying, I want to give you a set of interpretive tools that will help you as you come to difficult texts in Scripture. Because the reality, reality is we don't come to these difficult texts like blank slates. We come with our stories, everything we hold and believe to be true about the world, about God. And so I, we're going to walk through a set of hermeneutical paradigms, ways and approaches to interpreting Scripture that might help us wisely navigate these difficult texts. However, I do not promise that these will ultimately alleviate these tensions, but they are ways in which we can be wise exegetes or wise interpreters of Scripture. But before we dive in, let me pray for us, and then we can dive into these paradigms and see how we can be wide reader, readers of difficult scripture. Father, we come to you now humbly. And to say, if in your word there is life, will you help us to find it? We're honest, God, that there are often times we wonder why, like you chose to reveal yourself <laughs> through a text like the Bible, um, through the scriptures, why in that story are these complex, difficult narratives that we have to unpack and unravel? And yet, that's your invitation. And so, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts ready to understand who you are and what you're trying to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, so the first hermeneutical paradigm, first interpretive tool and really, this is less of a tool and more of a, a, a mindset that we have to address when we come to dealing with difficult scriptures. And it's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. 
defined by C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on the counter discredited. Now, I bring this up because often in reading scripture, we have this image of human progress that those things in the past, in the past are backwards and because we are further in history, we know better. And so, whether we realize it or not, being 21st century Westerners, this is often an attitude we bring towards the scripture. So we begin our engagement from this state of judgment, that because the scriptures exist in the past and because they're representative of cultures that are no longer in vogue, then by default, I am in a space where I can judge those stories. And so here's why we can't begin here. Because C.S. Lewis wisely notes that just because we are in the future compared to the text of scripture doesn't necessarily mean we are in a space to judge it properly. That we can't just uncritically accept the culture and thinking of our age and apply that to scripture. That we have to recognize at least that progress, at least the myth of progress is indeed that, a myth. And while we have made progress as a society, the reality is just because something is ancient doesn't necessarily mean it is backwards. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. He says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be and if you have taken a wrong turn, then going forward doesn't get you any nearer. So let's pause here. So we all want progress. We all want to be able to wisely engage with scripture. We all want to, we all want to adopt a worldview that is consistent and, and that is moral and wise and good. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying, he's saying, hey, listen, so that doesn't necessarily mean progress is moving forward. What it does mean is saying, where do I want to go? And progress is doing the necessary turning to get there. He says this, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. He said this, we have all seen this when we do arithmetic or math. When I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way forward. So hermeneutical paradigm number one. We cannot approach the text of scripture assuming because we are in the present that necessarily because the scripture is, is in the past, it is backwards or wrong. It's actually a, a janky philosophical assumption that just because something's old, it is out of date in terms of its moral character or fiber, right? So when we come to the text of scripture, we must at least admit somewhere that just because we are in the present doesn't necessarily mean we have nothing to learn from the past. And so if we come to scripture thinking, you know what, because I'm in the 21st century and I have the benefit of decades of scholarship and understanding and advancements in sciences that, that, I, that I can immediately judge the scriptures as something backwards, 
that actually means you're starting on the wrong place. That there has to be a level of humility about the age in which we live and the extent of our knowledge and that we can actually learn from the past. Because if we're going to be Christians at all, it means learning from the past. It means turning to an ancient text that is certainly disconnected from our present time and learning how to engage with it so that it actually teaches us something. We can critique scripture, we can approach it with a critical eye, but we can't do it with an uncritical assumption that our own age has gotten everything right. Paradigm number one. Number two is an important theological paradigm when it comes to interpreting scripture. It's called God's condescension. Now, this doesn't mean that God is condescending in, in this negative sense, but it means this. For, for a transcendent, all-powerful, good God to enter into and work with a broken and sinful humanity, he must at some point necessarily condescend or lower himself to work with humanity as it is. The witness of scripture shows us that as God enters into, into history, he uses and works with people in their social, cultural, historical location. In this way, God's revelation to people is always incarnational. It's always entering into the messy middle of human history. And so what is this important to know? That God works out his redemptive purpose with humanity as it is, not as we wish it to be. God works out his redemptive purposes with humanity as it is, not as we wish it to be. And so here's, here's why I bring this up. Because often, especially when we read the Old Testament, we're thinking like, man, like, why didn't God just completely change the culture of the Israelites? Why didn't God like establish the laws we have today? Why, why, didn't, God, like, why didn't God essentially turn the Israelites into a 21st century modern society with all the laws and ethics that come with that? That misses the point of how God works in history. God chose to work with Israel as it was, not as it could have been. That God enters into the brokenness of humanity, and in and through that brokenness works out his redemptive purposes. If God was to wait for humanity to be good enough, moral enough, to work out his purposes in history, then we would not be here. Because we would never have gotten to that point. At some point, God has to decide to work with humanity as it is, not as it should be or could be. And so when we come to scripture, we come to these texts, that is something, an important hermeneutical point to keep in mind. That when we read the brokenness, especially we see the, in the Old Testament texts and the, and the violence we see in the wars at work and, and the brokenness we see of humanity, we have to remember God is working with humanity as it is in all its brokenness and all its chaos and all its contradiction, not as we desire humanity to be. Because here's why. The Old Testament doesn't present us with an ahistorical people whose life and culture are blank slates and consistent with our own definitions of progress. That isn't how God acts in history. God has always, from Genesis to now, has always worked alongside and with his human agents, taking into account what they are so that through them, he can lead them to be the people he's called them to be. 
So hermeneutical paradigm number two, whenever we read the text of scripture, we must recognize that God is at some point condescending himself. It's actually a great example in um, the gospel narratives. They bring Jesus this question of divorce. And what we have to recognize in in Jesus' time in the first century, the, the Jewish divorce codes were being abused. And so when, 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 the, when the people come to say, Jesus, like, what's your views on divorce? What, what, what's what's going to happen when, and they begin asking ask all these theological questions. And G- Jesus says this great line. He says, Moses essentially gave you that ability to get divorced because you were hard-hearted. It wasn't supposed to be this way. In that little interaction, we see an example of God's condescension. God meeting people as they are, not as they desire to be. And Jesus points this out. This is actually, uh, actually, we should be in a world where people can have committed, loving relationships and be faithful to one another. But because we are in this broken world, I had to provide a way in which in a culture where especially women end up with the short end of the stick in a divorce proceeding, he had to include codes for divorce in the Torah so that women wouldn't left get holding the bag, if that's actually want to know what the divorce laws are about in the Old Testament. But he's saying you're abusing them, so actually you're missing the whole point. And actually, we should be in this ideal world where, where people can be staying loved and committed to one another, but I have to work with you as you are, not as you could be or should be. So God condescends to work out his purposes with humans as they are. And that means recognizing their brokenness and working in and with their brokenness. Number three, the descriptive versus the prescriptive. Now this is an, seems like a hermeneutical mistake, an interpretive mistake we don't often make, but actually we do. And here's this, often we come to scripture, we are appalled at what we see take place. The Bible's full of stories that contain literal murder, sexual violence, slavery, indentured servitude, and more. And these stories are rightly disturbing and should leave us puzzled as to their meaning. But there's a hermeneutical mistake we often make, and we're all guilty of it at some point. And And here's how it goes. We do this. We say, if the Bible is inspired, that is, if the Bible comes from God, and X occurs in the Bible, then the Bible must condone X. And so we'll come to a a, a pretty grievous thing happening in the text, and we say, man, because this is supposed to be a holy book, and it's in this book, certainly that means that God must condone this action. A great example from the Old Testament would be the the conception of of polygamy, right? We say, well, like, how can the Bible be to have this kind of hermeneutical framework around marriage? And here, all the, all the God's people have more than one wife, right? There's, there's this tension, like, what's going on here? But, no, but in that moment, we see an example of the Bible being descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. That the Bible, because it's a product of the ancient world, will describe the reality of the ancient world without necessarily prescribing it as how we should live today. Careful reading takes into consideration where the Bible is being descriptive, describing the reality of the ancient world and its people, and where it's being prescriptive, identifying normative practice for all God's people across time and space. That is the hard work of doing theology. Reading the text and saying, what is God describing in the context in which it's being described, 
But what is being prescribed to us today? And to conflate those two is to end up with messy theology, messy readings of scripture, to make more difficult text even more difficult. So, recap so far. Chronological snobbery, we can't have an uncritical acceptance of our age and apply that to scripture. Paradigm number two, God's condescension, that God has to, by the necessity of his transcendence, has to work with humanity as it is, not as we think it should be. Paradigm number three, recognizing the descriptive versus the prescriptive. Where is the Bible simply describing the reality of the ancient world versus prescribing a certain way to live? We move to number four, anachronistic reading. Generally speaking, anachronism is attributing any custom, event, or object into a time period to which it does not belong. We do this all the time when we read scripture. Whenever we come to scripture, we come preloaded with presuppositions about how the world should work, who God is, and what we should, and how we think people should respond and behave. And when we realize it or not, we judge these ancient authors because they don't share our cultural sensibilities our breadth of knowledge, our current understanding of the world. And when we read into the text our postmodern categories, we misunderstand much of the writers have to say. In other words, anachronistic reading is to take our current conception of the world and read it into the scriptures. And, and here's why that can be unhelpful, though there's moments where it is. Is that to assume the authors share our categories is to mishear them. A great example, I don't know about you, I, I, I didn't do too well in science in high school, but I know enough about the world to know that it, is, that it is a sphere, and I know enough that it orbits the sun, right, okay? Now, okay, I, don't, I didn't need a degree to get that information, I, I just had to remember enough of, of earth science to, to, to remember it. However, I'm going to come to the ancient text with that presupposition. And then I read Genesis 1 and the creation narrative. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to be pretty confused. Because the ancient Israelites conceived of the world as flat. And actually, the entire world sat on pillars above the water. And that in the sky, the sky we can look out right now, that's actually a dome. That above it, waters, like ocean waters dwell, water dwells. And so when you read verses like, God opened up the floodgates of heaven, for the ancient Israelites, that was literal. Because when it rained, their conception was God's literally opening up the, the windows of heaven and sending the water that's trapped up there down on the earth. If I go to scripture and say, you know what I need? An accurate scientific account of how the world works, I will be utterly disappointed. Because that would be anachronistic. It would be to read my modern presuppositions into these ancient authors and refuse to hear them. The reality is the Bible is not a scientific text. It is not designed to tell me about the physics of the universe. It is making theological points. And so I can't read my current understanding of the universe into the Bible and miss out on how the original authors would understand the scriptures. An even better one that maybe hits more closer to home. If you ever read the four gospels, and you read closely enough, you might have been thrown off, is that different events happen in different moments of time. 
And it's a little disturbing because I don't know if you grew up like me. People told me growing up that the Bible the, the, and, and the, the Gospels particularly were these accurate historical records of the life of Jesus. Now, last time I checked, accurate historical records shouldn't have time discrepancies. They should be accurate. And so when I first discovered this in college, I was kind of thrown off in my faith. I was like, hold on, these are supposed to be historical Historical, accurate records of the life of Jesus. And here are Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of playing fan fiction with Jesus' life. You know, I, I know he did that there, but I'm, I'm going to move that visit to Jerusalem up here. And actually, so John does this. He moves the Jerusalem visit and the cleansing of the temple to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he's like, but hold on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everyone said that happened at the end. And, and round and round we go. Again, what am I doing there? I'm reading a 21st century definition of history where we can have accurate timelines and we have video cameras that can take footage. I'm reading that presupposition about history into ancient authors who, guess what? Ancient authors, surprise, surprise, thought differently about writing historical biographies. In an ancient context where historical writing was much different, that they were much happier moving events around to make a theological point about a person than they were to just let the tale unfold as it is. It gets to our nature of what truth is. Does, is the life of Jesus any less true because stories got moved in the timeline? But to be anachronistic would say, you know, I'm going to take my modern understanding of history and the, and the, the events of history and read them into an ancient author who may have different conceptions about history. Number five, canonical reading and the rule of faith. This is the fifth paradigm. And this is why I told you to take notes, but I think this will be a reality of this teaching is this is kind of like a fire hose moment. And we'll settle down in a moment and we'll get away from this kind of technical stuff. But I want to encourage you guys to go back and listen and, and digest because, again, the point of these is not to give you a foolproof method never to have tension with Scripture, but to give you some ways in which you could rightly enter into it and think critically about it. So canonical reading and the rule of faith. This is another important paradigm when it comes to interpreting scripture. St. Augustine, in his seminal work on Christian teaching, says this, having become familiar with the language of the divine scriptures, we should turn to those obscure things which must be opened up and explained so that we may take examples from those things that are manifest to illuminate those things which are obscure being principles which are certain to bear on our doubts concerning those things which are uncertain. Don't you love translated Latin? So, what is St. Augustine saying there? He's saying this, very simply. When we come to interpreting Scripture, we must use the clear in Scripture to interpret what, what is not clear. We must use what is solid and kind of black and white in Scripture to then approach the mystery. And often we forget to do this. We come to these difficult texts, these moments of like, what do I do with this passage? And we forget that there's the rest of the Bible. And that all Christian reading of Scripture is canonical. In other words, all our reading of Scripture has to take place within the wider narrative of Scripture. That all our reading, all our interpreting must keep in mind the entire story. And what is clear in the story, let's say like the person of, 
of Jesus and, and let's say like, or, or, or John says about the nature of God being love. We use those, unclear, those clear passages when we come to unclear passages. And we read in the context of the entire story. We don't isolate stories. We read them and then say, what does the wider story of Scripture have to say about this? So whenever we read Scripture, it has to be canonical reading. But also, St. Augustine has a thing called the rule of faith, which is a very helpful paradigm for interpreting Scripture. This is what St. Augustine has to say. He says, whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them that does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not understand them as he ought. In other words, all our interpretation should follow the rule of faith. That as we approach difficult texts, if the interpretation we're landing at doesn't build us up in love of God or love of neighbor, if it doesn't honor the rule of faith, then we have to call it into question. Often, and here's why I, I added this here, because I think it's important. Often our tensions sometimes are not necessarily with the scriptures themselves, but how they've been interpreted. And we have to parse that out, because there's a difference between having a genuine tension with the scripture itself and how it's been misinterpreted by others. Those are two different problems. We often tend to conflate them. I, I, I remember a mentor telling me, I was at, at a juncture in my faith where I was kind of going through my own kind of deconstruction and doubting and my own journey. And a great mentor tell, tell me this. He says, he says, be sure you're doubting the real Jesus, not the Jesus someone's given you. And often we can apply that to Scripture. Make sure our tensions are with the actual Scriptures, not what someone else has taught wrongly about them. And so for St. Augustine, all our interpretive work needs to happen within the counsel of the entire story of Scripture, but also should always build up love of God and love of neighbor. I have two more, paradigm, two more paradigms I want to get through. Um, and then, for the sake of time, we'll end. And the bigger question is, what happens when all of these things fail us? <laughs> and we still have tensions and doubts. But the first one I want to note, is, is it's actually important, is that while we're critical of Scripture, it's good to know that the Bible's actually critical of itself. If you read long and hard enough through Scripture, you realize that the Bible is always self-critiquing itself. I, I want to highlight an example. The reigns of David and Solomon, right? If you're familiar with the story of Scripture, David, right? Massive armies, conquering king, also a, a, a sexual predator, and all these other things, right? And then you have Solomon, who, very wise, but apparently had a trouble keeping a single girlfriend, right? And so he has this he has hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines. And, and right, you're reading this like, how can these be the men after God's own heart, right? How can these be the examples par excellence about what it means to be a good ruler? Actually, the Bible never says that. <laughs> if you go back to the Torah, this is what Moses said about what king should be in Israel. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you will say, set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, the, the one the Lord God will choose. Hear this. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, 
lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all his words and statutes. When we read the stories of David and Solomon, we're actually supposed to have this in mind. Because what do David and Solomon do? They amass large armies. They take for themselves many wives. And really, according to the Torah, a good king of the Israelites would essentially be a Bible nerd who sits down and writes for himself and reads the Bible all day long. And so in the scripture itself, we have this example that the Bible is actually always critiquing itself. That these, and that's why it's supposed to read the, a canonical reading of scripture because the Bible is working to kind of show you how people are moving off the path God has laid out for them. The Bible's internal logic is aware of the messy nature of the story. And so there are moments when we are reminded that those messy narratives are to be read in light of these self-critiquing texts. It's very interesting, that's essentially the prophets who are the critiques of the story. They're looking at the story of Israel and going, we have gone far off the mark. And last but not least, the problem of hyperbole. Because of the Bible's status as a religious text, we often think that the Bible is above literary devices, but it's not. And so what we have to recognize is that often in scripture, hyperbole, especially, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, is paramount in ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, the scholar Scott McKnight writes this, ancient Near Eastern scribes accentuated the speed at which victories took place. They emphasized the king's military prowess. They could relate the complete annihilation of the enemy, while latter history actually shows this is not the case. In other words, in ancient, the ancient Near East, when you wrote about wars and things like that, you tended to exaggerate. And so when we come to these texts where like, like there seems to be utter genocides of people, we have to pause and remember the Bible is not above using literary devices. That the ancient Near Eastern scribes who wrote these texts had a tendency to exaggerate, had a tendency to use hyperbole to make a point. And so if the text of Scripture uses hyperbole, then what we can't do is come in with this ultra-wooden reading of Scripture that says, that dismisses its use of literary devices. All that to say, these are just several of many paradigms that can be used for our exploration of Scripture. This should be a whole sermon series in and of itself, and there's kind of a time crunch when you're limited to the 30 minutes you got. So, if you have any questions about how to use these paradigms, my email is ryan at oaksbk.church. <laughs> and I say that not even as a joke, but to say, our pastoral team, this is why we're here. When you have questions and need to walk through these things, that's why we're here. And so, what I want you to do is I want to take these literary paradigms, hold on to them, and try to notice them in your own engagement with Scripture. But, let's end here. And the band can come up and join me. And in a moment, don't worry, um, the hospitality can help us with, with, with communion. I'll invite you guys up in a moment. Despite all these helpful paradigms that can help shape our engagement with Scripture, the reality is it's not going to relieve all our tensions. I am a 
a literal student of scripture, okay? I'm graduating with a master's in biblical studies in January, okay? Oh, thank you very much. That, that's very heartwarming, but it's more so to make the point, even when you make this your study, your academic study, you do not walk away free of tensions. So let me say that to encourage you, um, especially when you're in a role where you sort of your job is reading and teaching the Bible. You'd think you'd solve all the tension, but that's actually not true. And so I want to invite us, those of us who said, yeah, all those literary, par- all those hermeneutical paradigms are great. I'm sure they'll help me engage with text, but guess what? I still have my doubts. I still have my tensions. I want to invite us back to our teaching text. You're like, man, they read that whole long teaching text. What for? For this moment here. John 6 invites us into a moment in Jesus' ministry rife with tension. What's the tension? Jesus is teaching the people, and the people are finding his teachings difficult. Surprise, surprise. Jesus' teachings are hard, and if not for his Jewish audience, outright subversive or downright heretical. Jesus is naming himself as the bread of life greater than the manna given to the people by Moses. And in fact, he makes the claim that if you want to live and have the eternal life, you have to eat his body and drink his blood. Imagine I got up here and said that today, this morning. And the people are utterly confounded. And rather than a kind of quiet their tensions, Jesus doubles down. He says, does this offend you? Dealing with difficult teaching comes part and parcel with following Jesus. Often we have in our heads this sanitized image of Jesus who's quiet and quaint, who never ruffles a feather, who never said anything hard or challenging or alienating. Yet a quick look at the Gospel of John reminds us that Jesus was nothing of the sort. Sure, he was loving and gracious, but the invitation to enter his kingdom came through a narrow road. And those who wanted to follow them, he says, hey, You might have to count the cost. Jesus was not innocent of saying hard, difficult things. And here in this teaching text, we get a moment where the crowds are about to rebel on Jesus. They're saying, this is a difficult teaching. Who can understand it? Who could follow it? And that's the question we're left with today. We have the difficult text of Scripture, the difficult teaching of Scripture. And we're saying, who can understand it? Who can follow it? And it's in this moment Jesus turns to the 12, his 12 disciples. And he point blank asks them, are you going to leave too? Because what the scriptures tell us is that after hearing the difficult teaching, people were kind of like, you know what? Eating flesh, drinking blood, not my speed. I'm going to go find salvation elsewhere. And they left. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave too because of how difficult this is? And Peter goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the son of God. Notice Peter doesn't say that he understands what Jesus is saying. The implication is that Peter is also confused and confounded by Jesus' teaching. But despite this, Peter understands something fundamental about Jesus. He says, you have the words of eternal life. Though Jesus utterly defies convention and confounds Peter and his disciples, 
Peter knows that somewhere in this great mystery are the words of life. It's this hope he clings to, even when confronted with a difficult teaching. Like Peter, we are confronted today with the surprising and challenging teachings of Jesus in the text of Scripture. For all our useful paradigms and clever reading, there will never be enough answers to satisfy us. There will always be texts that get to the heart of who we are and leave us with more questions than answers. But the great hope of the Christian faith is that we are not called to root our hope in a disconnected, disembodied set of religious texts but a living, breathing person. In other words, you don't walk into the mystery of scripture alone. The invitation is to explore the mystery of scripture, not with one of willful ignorance or trite explanations. It is an invitation to root our imaginations in the word itself, the word himself, who has within his very nature the words of eternal life. We will always have questions when it comes to scripture. But I might, uh, let me say this in a way that I hope you understand. The invitation to Christianity is not an invitation to commit ourselves to a book, but to a person. Now the book helps us understand a person and vice versa, but it's ultimately about a person. And it's that person who actually wants to read difficult scripture with you and be with you and reveal their meaning to you. So let me pray for us and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Again, I'm always so confounded by the fact That when Jesus wanted to remember us, he didn't leave us a creed, he left us a meal. So that we can experience with our bodies that which maybe our minds cannot comprehend. Receive this prayer as a blessing. How strangely comforting, Lord, that so many of your servants have doubted you. So if you cannot always see the sense of, so if I cannot always see the sense of your word, if I do not always feel confident about my faith, if I wonder where your love is in the face of pain and death, I am not the first. A great company of saints and martyrs has felt this way before me. Now in your presence they see face to face and know as they are known. Teach me like them, not so much to fear doubt, but as to see it as a sign of the mystery of life and a door to discovery. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Communion team, come up, and you all can stand, and then we'll get out of here. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of my new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come and receive.